Well, this morning we are uh, kicking off a series on the themes of Advent to really prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas. And uh, here's a confession, and you, you would have caught this if you were listening uh, to Catherine's announcements, or you would know this if you're a liturgical person. Uh, we are a week late starting our Advent series, just because of how the preaching schedule kind of worked out. Uh, Advent actually started last week, but as we were chatting, I assured Pastor Keith that uh, Evergreen is not really the kind of church to quibble over liturgical matters, and uh, so here we are. Uh, My family is, uh, my mom's side, my ancestors are from Scotland, from the Kerr clan, and the slogan that's written on our family crest uh, says, I'm going to have to actually look at this, it says, Sero said Serio, which means late but in earnest. (laughs) We're not usually on time, not usually on time, but when we get there, we are all in, you know, we mean it, and that is the spirit with which we are entering into Advent here at Evergreen this year. A little bit late, sure, uh, but fully ready to enter into what God has in store for us in this season. Uh, Now, depending on your church background, Advent may or may not be a season that you are very familiar with. It doesn't always get a lot of attention in uh, churches that are less traditional, like like we are here at Evergreen. Uh, But Advent is actually an incredibly powerful season, especially in our culture where Christmas has become so commercialized. Because in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we are all constantly being bombarded with all kinds of messages about what matters most in this season, about what the perfect Christmas looks like and what we need to do to make sure that we capture all of the warm fuzzies that the Hallmark movies tell us that we and our loved ones deserve. And ultimately, that boils down to two things that usually end up defining the Christmas season for most of us. Rushing and buying. Rushing and buying. Most of us spend the entire month of December running around from one place to another. Right From stores to Christmas concerts to preparing food and decorating trees and putting up lights. There's just so much to do and not enough time to do it all in the month of December. And uh, from Black Friday until Boxing Day, everywhere we look, there are advertisements trying to convince us that if we want to make Christmas really special... We're going to need to buy this new toy for our kids or that beautiful Christmas sweater for our work party or a giant inflatable Grinch to go up on the lawn. In our world, Christmas is all about rushing and buying. Advent, on the other hand, is about waiting and trusting. It's about waiting for God to fulfill his promises, longing for him to do what only he can do, and holding out in anticipation for that to happen. And it's about trusting. It's about trusting that God is faithful, 
that he's going to provide for our deepest needs. And it's about opening our hands to receive as gift that which we could never buy or earn for ourselves. And this season, our hope is, uh, for you and for ourselves is that we can avoid getting sucked in to the Christmas chaos. Thank you, Stephen. And instead, that we can be drawn back into this story of God's faithfulness, of this story of God breaking into the world to bring new life and open up new possibilities and a new way forward that nobody could have imagined. So this week, we are focusing on the first theme of Advent, which is hope. And when we talked about how to squeeze all of the Advent themes in after missing a week, one of the options that we joked about was just cutting out hope altogether. (laughs) Because talking about hope can feel like a bold move in the world that we're living in today. Is there any hope to speak of in a world that's been ravaged by a global pandemic, and just can't seem to get itself back to normal or even into a comfortable new normal? Is it a facade to talk about hope in a world that's full of conflict and division and economic hardship and violence? Is hope realistic for those of us who are tired and weary or sick, or lonely? Is hope possible for people whose families have been torn apart, or for people who are going into this season with an empty chair at their table where a loved one used to sit? Or for those whose lives just haven't unfolded the way that we thought that they would? Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we are living in a world that's full of sick hearts because of the curveballs that life has thrown us. Is there any hope to hold on to? Part of the challenge is that in our culture, we have a very superficial understanding of the word hope. We tend to think about hope as optimism or wishful thinking. We think about it as seeing the glass as being half full, looking for the bright side of every situation. Hope is a nice word. It's a word that makes us feel good. It's a word we like to get printed onto mugs and pillows to give us nice warm fuzzies. But it isn't a word that has a lot of grit to it. And when that's our understanding of hope, it doesn't feel all that relevant when life gets tough. It doesn't matter how much tinsel we might hang on our tree or how loudly we might crank the Christmas carols, there are times when we just can't pretend that everything is merry and bright. And maybe you've been wrestling with that as we get ready for Christmas this year. But the hope that we have as people of faith is very different than the hope that we tend to talk about within our culture. Scripture is never afraid to stare brokenness in the face and call it what it is. 
And the hope that we read about in scripture is a hope that meets us right in the midst of the darkest circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's a hope that can hold us steady and carry us through the most difficult situations. It's a hope that can fill us with joy, like even in the midst of our struggles. And it's a hope that never disappoints us because our hope is anchored in the reality, in the truth that God is faithful. Now, when we think about the Christmas story, we most often think about uh, angels and donkeys and a baby being born and laid in a manger. But Christmas doesn't actually start there. To understand the significance of that little baby's birth, we need to go all the way back to Genesis 1, to the very first page of the Bible, where this whole story began with God creating a very good world. And so before we dive into our passage this morning, which is going to be from the book of Isaiah, we're going to do a quick run through some of the key moments from the Old Testament. Because understanding the story of the people of Israel is critical if we want to understand the hope that came into the world when Jesus was born and just how people would have experienced it. And as followers of Jesus, this is our story too. So in Genesis 1, God creates a perfect world and human beings lived in perfect harmony, perfect union, perfect intimacy with him. And God gives Adam and Eve just one commandment to follow, right? They had one job because love has to be chosen. Love is only love if it's given by a person's free will. And so God commands Adam and Eve not to eat from one tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the other fruit from all of the other trees is theirs to enjoy. But nonetheless, we only make it to chapter three of Genesis before things go terribly wrong, right? And most of you know this story. A serpent shows up and deceives Eve to believing that God is holding out on her. And she and Adam eat from the tree and sin enters the world. And in that moment, everything changes. Suddenly, the relationship between God and between human beings is fractured. All of God's good creation is infected with sin and death and decay. And things begin to go downhill very quickly. But then, in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. He promises that he is going to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and that they would then become a blessing to the entire world. How they would become a blessing wasn't clear in the beginning, and it became less and less clear as we uh, read about the ways that Abraham's descendants continuously turn away from God. Their stories are marked with deception and violence and betrayal. The impact of sin continues to ravage human beings, even the ones that are called out to be God's people. 
And then eventually, a little bit later on in the story, the people of Israel ask God for a king. And after a rocky start with Saul, David is anointed as the king of Israel. And God makes a promise to David. He promises that one of his sons will come to the throne and that through him, through this son, God would extend his kingdom of peace and blessing throughout the whole world forever. And as things continue throughout Israel's story, there are some bright moments of faithfulness and obedience and blessing. But in the grand scheme of things, those moments are relatively fleeting. Hey, ultimately, God's people continue to turn away from him. They worship idols. Their communities are filled with violence and oppression. And as a result, they find themselves in a downward spiral living through war and exile and captivity. And in those dark seasons of Israel's history, God calls out prophets to speak on his behalf, to call his people back to him, to announce his judgment, and to remind people of the hope that they have because of the promises that God had made to them. That he would bring about his restoration in a way that was totally dependent on him and not at all dependent on the Israelites and their ability to be faithful. And this is the context that we find ourselves in, in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. And so if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me there. We're also going to have it up on the screen, so you can just follow along that way. So Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century B.C. And this was a dark time in Israel's history. The leaders were corrupt. People were worshiping other gods and making alliances with other nations. The poor and the vulnerable were being abused and neglected. And so Isaiah's called to warn the people of Israel that God was going to use the empires of Assyria and Babylon to bring about his judgment. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes Israel as a great forest of oak trees that are about to be chopped down and scorched with fire until it looks like a wasteland, until all signs of life are gone. But alongside these dark pictures of judgment, Isaiah continuously draws the people back to hope. He reminds Israel of the promises that God made to them, and he starts to give these tiny little glimpses into what it's going to look like when those promises are fulfilled. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those passages that starts to look ahead to the coming of Christ. So Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10, says this, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. So you'll remember the picture that Isaiah has painted of this forest that's been cleared and these stumps that are just left remaining, that have been scorched, right? And so he says, out of the stump of David's family, that a shoot is going to spring up. Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. So verses 2 to 5 describe what this coming king is going to be like. He's going to be filled with the spirit of the Lord. He's going to lead with wisdom and justice and righteousness. And then verses 6 to 9, which we're going to read next, are going to describe how this king's reign will impact the world. Verse 6, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will, will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And the word that's used for know there, it doesn't just convey familiarity or like a cognitive knowledge of someone. It's like a deep, intimate, experiential knowing. So Isaiah says that the world will be filled with people who know God deeply and who live in his ways. So Isaiah paints this picture of a new creation. This is a world that's been restored and redeemed. This is a place where peace and unity exist in a way that existed way back on page one, right in the Garden of Eden. This is a place where there's no fear, there's no violence. This is a place where the most vulnerable can sit next to the most dangerous creatures in perfect safety This is a picture of shalom, of perfect peace, of wholeness, and of goodness. And then verse 10 says this, In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Now, that is a powerful declaration. He will be a banner of salvation for all the world. Now, Isaiah's words of hope stood in stark contrast to the violence and the oppression and the fear and the hopelessness that filled and surrounded the people of Israel at this moment of their history. And hundreds of years would pass before these promises would be fulfilled. Actually, the last uh, prophetic writing that we have in the Old Testament was Malachi, and that was written in about 420 BC. So 400 years passed between the Old Testament and the New Testament where the people of Israel didn't hear from God at all. Can you imagine 400 years. 
On Monday, I ordered a new phone case from Amazon. And a little bit later, I went back to Amazon to check when I could expect to see it in the mail. I was a little annoyed it wasn't showing up. It had been like an hour, you know. And it said that I was going to have to wait until Saturday before it arrived. Saturday. They were expecting me to wait five days for this phone case to be dropped into my mailbox. Five days. Like, what is this, 1993? What's next? uh, Dial-up internet? It's ridiculous. So you know what I did? I canceled the order. Like most of you would have done. Come on. I canceled the order and I ordered a new phone case with guaranteed one-day shipping. How are you with waiting? I'm not that good at it. 400 years, the people of Israel waited for the promises to be fulfilled. And as difficult as it is to wait for things like phone cases and Amazon packages, we all go through seasons of waiting that are even harder. We all go through seasons of waiting, seasons where life gets tough and there's no quick fix. There's no Band-Aid that will make things better. Sometimes it's seasons of loss, seasons of sickness. Sometimes it's when relationships break down and jobs are lost. There are seasons in our lives when waiting feels impossible, when the ache of our circumstances feels unbearable to continue to carry for much longer. The Israelites waited 400 years without hearing from God. The people of God knew what it meant to wait. But the prophet Isaiah invited them into a different kind of waiting. Waiting that was filled with hopeful expectation. In the midst of the darkness that they found themselves in, they could move forward trusting that their story wasn't finished. That God was going to do a new thing in their midst and that none of their failures and none of their faithlessness was going to be able to stop him. They could move forward trusting that God was still on the move and that he would rescue them and lead them into a reality that was marked with peace and blessing just as he had promised. And the season of Advent invites us into a different kind of waiting as well. Not the kind of waiting that involves distracting ourselves with frenetic activity or Netflix binges. Not the kind of waiting that involves doing whatever we can to just numb the pain or pretending like it's fine and we're fine and everything's fine when really it's not and we're not. But a kind of waiting that strips away the distractions and our sense of self-sufficiency and that draws us back to the God who is faithful, to the God who keeps his promises, to the God who is with us. That kind of waiting gives us clarity about what matters most in our lives. And it recalibrates our hearts to the truth that our hope is found in Christ alone. 
Remember Isaiah's imagery of the nation of Israel as a forest of mighty oaks that had been chopped down and scorched with fire. It was in that exact moment in our passage, that exact moment where everything looks like it's beyond hope, that a tiny sign of life bursts forward. In this cleared out expanse where a forest once stood in the middle of a bunch of of stumps that have been scorched away to nothing, in this desolate place that looks lifeless and hopeless, a tiny shoot springs up. And suddenly, the world is full of new possibilities. And as we look ahead to the New Testament, we can be sure after 400 years of silence that things were feeling pretty hopeless for God's people who were now being oppressed by the Romans. Where was God? Was he still, were they still his people? Had God given up on them? We can be sure that all kinds of people had lost hope had walked away from their faith or had gone to a place where they were just maybe going through the motions with the religious rituals, but deep down doubted whether God would ever come through for them. But that in that exact moment, when it seems like they're beyond hope, a Jewish priest goes to a temple to offer a sacrifice and an angel shows up and tells him that his elderly wife was going to give birth to a son who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And then an angel appears to a poor teenage girl, to a virgin, and tells her that God is going to do the impossible in her, that she would give birth to a baby boy who would be called Son of the Most High, that he would be given the throne of his ancestor David, and that he would reign over Israel forever. And then one night, a baby was born. A shoot sprung up from the stump of David's family, a banner of salvation to all the world, and everything changed forever. The God who had been silent for 400 years came into the world to fulfill his promise to set his people free and extend his kingdom of peace and blessing to all nations. In the season of Advent, we celebrate a hope that shows up in the darkest places in the most unexpected ways. We celebrate a hope that brings new life when it seems like everything has been swallowed up by death. We celebrate a hope that transforms fear and conflict into peace and wholeness. We celebrate hope that creates a way forward when it seems like every door is closed. We celebrate a hope that can never be taken from us because it's a hope that's not dependent on our circumstances. Our hope is found in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. The word advent means arrival or coming. And at Christmas time, we usually think about it in terms of Jesus coming into the world as a newborn baby. But there's actually three aspects of Jesus' arrival that are equally important for us to hold on to 
to live as people who experience and represent his hope, especially in this season of Advent. In Advent, we remember that Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago as a newborn baby, but we also remember that Jesus is with us now, in the present. Jesus was called Emmanuel, right? God with us. At Christmas, we're not just celebrating a historical event, something that happened 2,000 years ago. We're celebrating the reality that because God fulfilled his promise to rescue his people, his spirit lives in us. We've been reconciled to God, and we can experience God's love and God's presence and his guidance each and every day. And we remember that Jesus will come again. His kingdom is here, but it's not yet complete, right? And we feel that. We know that. But one day, Jesus will come back to renew and restore all of creation once and for all. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling to muster up the Christmas spirit this year. Maybe your heart has been sick because of hopes that have been deferred. Maybe you're wondering whether there's really much hope for our broken world at all. As we enter into this Advent season, may we be reminded that no matter how dark things may seem, we have a God who loves us so much that he came into the world in the most vulnerable way possible to experience for himself every aspect of what it means to be human, to show us how to live and to die on the cross so that we could be set free from our sin and experience new life in him. And may we remember that we have a God who is with us each and every day in every situation that we face. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He loves us, he's for us, and we can trust that he's working all things out for our good. As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And in this season, may we be reminded that Jesus will come again and that everything that's wrong will be made right. There will be no more sin or death or suffering and we will live forever in his kingdom of peace and love. This Advent season, may we keep our eyes open for the ways that Jesus continues to show up in our world to bring about his new life. And may we be renewed and energized in hope as we trust in our God who's always faithful. He was faithful yesterday, he's faithful today, and he'll be faithful tomorrow. Isaiah does something really beautiful in the next section of his book in chapter 12. He gives the Israelites a song to sing. I'm going to read it. Chapter 12 says this, In that day you will sing. I will praise you, O Lord. You were angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. 
With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. In that wonderful day you will sing, thank the Lord, praise his name, tell the nations what he has done. Let them know how mighty he is. Sing to the Lord for he has done wonderful things. Make known his praise around the world. Let all the people of Jerusalem shout his praise with joy for great is the Holy One of Israel who lives among you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up to the front. Isaiah gives the Israelites a song to sing as they enter into all of the chaos and suffering that he knows they're about to go through. Essentially, he says this. He says, this is the song that you're going to be singing when you've experienced God's salvation. So why don't you start singing it now? Why don't you start singing it now so that on your worst day, you don't forget that this is how the story's going to end. This is one of the ways that Isaiah was inviting God's people into hope as they waited for God to fulfill his promise. So before we transition into communion, the worship team is going to lead us in a song about God's goodness. And as we sing it, I want to encourage you to really take it in, to pay attention to the words, to let your heart just take in the reality of what it is that we're declaring together. And let this be a song that carries you forward with a deeper sense of the hope that you have because our God is good. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the incredible story that we celebrate at Christmas, the story of your son coming into the world to rescue your people. We thank you, God, for this season that reminds us that you are always with us, that we can trust you, that there's always hope, God, because you are still on the move today. And I pray, God, that in this season, this morning, and as we move forward in the weeks ahead, that you would help us to avoid getting sucked into the chaos that so frequently defines our lives in this season, and that instead, you would draw us back into this story that defines our reality as your people. May we be people who experience your hope and who extend it to everyone, everyone that we meet. In your name, amen.